0: Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, the public enemy of terrible games. I'm here with the prophet of rage, Mark Bigney, and my name is the hype machine, flavor of the month, The Walker. How are
1: you today, Mark? Uh, I'm very good. I don't think I could aspire to the status of uh, Tom Morello or any of those individuals. But if any of our (coughs) listeners get that reference, and I hope some of them do at least. Good lord, we're so white. Maybe, maybe one or two. All right, so today on So Very Wrong
0: About Games... We're going to go over each other's grocery list and the nutritional value of each item, then on to the do's and don'ts of skydiving with chainsaws, and then to close it up, Mark and I will do a nice tap-shoe slow dance. But first, I need to do an errata that we missed last week, and talking about the Scythe, the new airships for Scythe. I talked about why didn't they put uh, alternate sculpts in the block and it's obvious why they didn't put ultimate sculpts in the block because they needed to be all different colors so obviously they could only put one color per block
1: that's a good point that's getting a little bit more into the manufacturing end of things though normally i just like to wave my hand and say it's a cost issue and not understand details true true
0: all right
1: thanks for getting us on the right page there walker Alright, so games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? Well, the first game I want to talk about is a game I've been meaning to try for a very long time, and that's uh, Mark Herman's Pericles, The Peloponnesian Wars. This was put out this year by GMT. This is sort of a, a spiritual successor to Churchill, which is a, a game Herman released a couple of years ago about the so-called Big Three in in, in World War II and its immediate aftermath. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of Churchill in part because of the victory conditions, but i got to say that Pericles, at least in terms of the vit- victory conditions, is very, very nicely cleaned up. It's got a very interesting setup. It's two teams of two, um, and it does semi-cooperative better than, I think, almost any game that I've seen. You basically fight with your partner over what issues you're going to be resolving. And then once you're done fighting with your partner and you've basically set out the agenda that your side is going to be pursuing, you then engage on the map while jockeying with your opponent. It's Athens versus Sparta, basically. Uh, The the old story of those old Pelopones who just couldn't get along. And I've worked through the training scenarios and I've started in on the solo, uh, one of the more meaty solo scenarios, and I am very, very, very impressed. It is, it's, it's gotten, I think, an unfair reputation for being overly complicated, which I don't quite understand. All of the systems involved are relatively straightforward and accessible. And even the solo AI is one of the best solo AIs I've ever seen. Uh, More on that a little bit later when we start talking about rulebooks and such, but it does a very, very good job of handling the information flow, and often when I'm playing even relatively simple solo games, I find myself tiring of the mental strain of maintaining all the systems by myself and choosing my best moves. But Pericles, despite being a, you know, four-hour war game experience, and by the way, Walker, I mean actual war game, not like, you know, Kemet or something. Oh,
0: oh. Yeah. Excuse me, let me turn my pinky up.
1: Yeah, it's very important. Uh, but I've been finding it very engaging. These are preliminary impressions only. I'm probably going to come back with a more substantial review at some later time, but uh, I've I've been very, very pleased. And Herman's done some incredible things in the hobby. He's definitely, he, he's always someone to watch, Even if even when I don't like what he puts out, he always does something interesting. And uh, Pericles is, is so far, amazing. Gotcha. It's GMT, you said?
0: Absolutely. So let me guess. Box art is mustard yellow with turquoise and bright red?
1: Look, uh, Roger McGowan and the people at GMT, I think, do an incredible job. I, I honestly Hi. don't understand. Look, it doesn't have a space line on the cover. And it doesn't have, uh, you know, ample shades of, of purple and and Yellow and all that nonsense like some other games uh, that you and I might or might not have played this week. More on that later. I quite like GMT's graphic design and the mere fact that I'm more of a gaming omnivore than you are, you narrow-minded, little closeted sort of nice little pigeonholed self uh, self sequestered ignoramus uh you know you're more to be pitied than punished and so uh it's more a it's more a question of my having deep sympathy for your narrow horizons you've hurt my feeling good well what i've played is a game that has box art
0: it's called great western trail great hit from last year four-player game taking cows up to kansas city what a great great game hand management You get to change it up every time. The buildings go in different places. Just an all round great game. Give it a try. You've tried it once. What do you think of Great Western Trail?
1: It was somewhat hampered, and I don't mean to pile on to you by the rules explanation. Uh, There there was a a fair bit going on, and you weren't necessarily in the best headspace to explain what was going on. I enjoyed it. I would try it again. Uh, a little too, early to, 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 uh, little too early to make solid impressions on it. I will say, though, that just while, while we're on the topic of GMT products versus other things, GMT products at least have a well-grounded theme as opposed to Great Western Trail where you're taking cows from the eastern seaboard into Kansas City, which is grotesquely historical even on the face of it. Uh, even for a Euro game, they didn't even bother doing the due diligence taking like five seconds like, where did cows go and how did this work?
0: It's true. It's why I completely changed the theme when I explain it to people. It's true. I, that was that was just a mistake of different gaming groups. Like normally, in my old gaming group, we just open up the box and and go through the rules together. I didn't realize that that was a faux pas with with that with the particular people I had at that time. So I, I, I do have,
1: apologize. Do do tell do tell our listeners how you rethemed Great Western Trail because I think it's quite good. Oh, the Great Western Trail. Well, you see,
0: the the alien overlords have taken over the planet, and and as we all know, aliens love to probe cows, but they like to probe different cows so you must take a different hand of cows to the alien overlords and and make sure that you keep them happy or they will punish you that's that's the best way to do it that's you know i think a better theme than that what they've tried to tack on it
1: i think you should retheme many euro games i think it would do them there
0: you go do them some good no problem we both played uh sid meyer civilization a new dawn yes we did what were your impressions i liked it I love, I really wanted to try the Conan card sliding down, you know, getting your actions, either they cost you more or they're not as useful as you cycle them through. I really wanted to try that system and they really implement, implemented it well in this game.
1: Yeah, the clever bits are really clever. The, not only is it the case that you have this action queue where later cards are, are generally better, they're better by virtue of the fact that they are more flexible in terms of what they can do on the map. There's this notion of terrain difficulty, and some terrains are very easy to uh, influence or modify or act upon depending on what kind of card you're activating. Some are very difficult. And so if you want to move through a mountain, or if you want to research with a high value, you need to both of those work on this same very f- uh, simple, elegant mechanic. A lot of the other stuff I'm... I'm okay on, but I'm a little bit leery. Uh, I'm a little bit... I've only played it twice. I'm a little bit concerned about the narrow technology range. Uh, The technology decks might seem to feel a bit samey after a while. I'm a little bit concerned about... The potential for kingmaking, although at least they do a reasonably good job of solving the multiplayer conflict game problem, if I attack you, it's not the case that the third player is going to profit, because if I win the attack, I've taken your stuff, and at least I have extra cities now, and I have extra ways to defend myself, and I've yet to play a game... Uh, with a whole bunch of fully aggro players. Uh, and I'd like to see if the game system could, could survive that. And I'd also like to see if the game system could survive multiple plays. But yeah, what's clever is really clever. It's very clean for uh, an in-house FFG design. Uh, if you'll permit me, though, I would like to spend about 30 seconds complaining about the narrow historical uh, perspective of many gamers, though. Cool. do tell do tell yeah Walker knows where I'm going with this I, I find it and this is I realize this is me being an insufferable snob and I apologize but uh, with, with all due respect I don't mean that in a dismissive way People keep talking about this at, in reference to the original civilization game, the one put out you know a couple years ago, as opposed to say, many of the other games called civilization, like the one in 1980, the brill- the still excellent Francis Tresham design put out by uh, you know the forerunner to GMT in many ways, Avalon hill. I, I I can't believe that you know people are talking about FFG's 2014 train wreck as though it's the original civilization game. If you want to say previous, that's fine. That's cool. Just don't say original, please. Uh, get, get some sense of history. Anyway, rant over. All right, what's next on your list, Mark? Well, next on my list is uh, something that we both experienced together, and I use the term experience very appropriately. That's Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. I've played the third edition with you before, the once, and I played the fourth edition once now. So again, these are somewhat preliminary uh, uh, impressions, but keep in mind, having played it once, that means I've been with this thing for about eight hours. So in terms of overall experience with the design, I I think I've, I've had some experience with it. I may have played a worse game this year, but I certainly can't remember it. Uh, I'm I, and I'm sure that there are worse games than this, but I sometimes have difficulty remembering them. Uh, you know, LCR is probably a worse game, but at least LCR will be over sooner. And I don't understand the appeal that this game has in the imagination of many people who want to know better. Now, keep in mind, just uh, just having set the stage, I've just I mean I've already talked about Francis Tresham's civilizations and uh, Civilization in Pericles, Some of my favorite games are eight plus hours. It is, this is not a, you know, it's too long, therefore it's bad kind of situation. Although I perfectly respect people who don't want to play a game that that's long. That's fine, to each their own. But this is a system that fights you when it should be making things easy. The only thing that's easy about the design is the pointless and arbitrary take-that stupidity. There's all manner of cards that come into the game, which range from borderline useless to incredibly amazing, and a lot of them are targeted aggression and spite for no particular reason, which by itself i object to but when grafted on to an 8 hour long clunky design makes things get worse well it seems like no reason but i think they've they've introduced these crazy mechanisms to try
0: to streamline it to make it go faster to push the game along type thing i really but so many of them are destructive I, it's i don't want to like like you said to take the pds out to make a planet less defensible to, so people will attack it to make Metatol Rex easier to take to to soften up defenses. Okay, let's get into this. To get in there.
1: No, no, no. no. Let's talk about specifics because I think that that this would help a great deal. Uh, One of the changes, and this actually gives me some opportunity to uh, compliment the design because one of the changes that 4 did compared to 3 is that it hived off some of the construction. It used to be that when you were constructing something, it was all the same process. You just built stuff and and stuff showed up. And then they needed some sub-rules about... What you could do with the stuff you've built this turn, and what the, what, you know, the stuff that you build this turn can't be used to build other stuff, and all that other other stuff. They hive that off, and now when you're constructing what I will broadly call infrastructure, that's a separate process from building ships. And this actually serves to streamline the game and simplify things. And so you don't have to worry about a complicated turn structure, and it also gives some sort of uh, unique differentiation to the space docks and the planetary defense systems, the PDSs. All for the good. What it also does is it makes them relatively slow and difficult to uh, manufacture. Twilight Imperium loves artificial bottlenecks. Uh, Whether it's technology or whether it's building infrastructure, there's this incredibly hard cap that can't be superseded. There's no way to pay an opportunity cost to do something over again or to do something twice, albeit less efficiently. For example, like Eclipse allows you to do. Eclipse gives you much more free-form action selection uh, because it's (coughs) a better game, but... Uh, In the context of Twilight Imperium 4, this thing that you might have spent a tremendous deal of time waiting for the opportunity to do can just be eliminated by the play of a Take That card, which by itself is obnoxious, but is even more obnoxious when you consider the fact that this is all in the context of a game where it is aggressively uninterested in addressing or dealing with the fundamental problems of multiplayer conflict games. In Twilight Imperium th- uh, 4, the same was true of 3, but but in 4, if players A and B fight, player C often wins. They just swoop in and take care of what's left. And if somebody clear on the other side of the map says, oh, okay, I'll just play this against the leader, and the game, by the way, in a number of subtle ways encourages you to do this kind of nonsense, then they're often not in a position to capitalize on it. So it's like, I'll just nuke your infrastructure, and then players C and D, who are, who are busy salivating at moving in, uh, they then profit from this. Now, what aggrieves me particularly about this particular example of Take That Cards that just, you know, nuke infrastructure, is there are ways to deal with this very simply. You want to Take That Cards? Fine. Just key them in such a way that the player who plays them needs to be in a position to capitalize on it so it doesn't end up just throwing it to somebody else. For example, instead of a card that just says destroy all the PDSs on a planet, it's not even just one, it's just all the ones you've got on a particular place. I respect the fact that you need a way to soften up the center planet, which is called Mechatol Rex. It's it's the big hill on the King of the Hill, so everyone swarms there and A bashes B and then B is weakened, so D moves in, but then D was weakened by that, so C moves in and C wins because everyone else is exhausted, etc., etc., but, it, anyway, getting back to the point, you can instead make it a card that says, play this card at the start of a combat, disable all the PDSs for the duration of this combat.
0: True, and there are cards in there that say that, so I don't understand in this game why they didn't make them all like that. Why make just an arbitrary kill a PDS anywhere on the board made no sense to me.
1: Yeah, and there's a number of details like that. I'll I'll, I'll fully admit, Walker, you guys were very tolerant, but I spent most of the game bitching. Uh, it's just there are all, all, these, all these details that snuck in Everything fights you when it could be when, when it when it should be smooth. Everything is simplistic when it should be a little bit more robust. The game takes seating order very seriously for action selection, which is fine. But then when it really really matters in the context of voting, which could potentially be interesting, it's just straight clockwise from from a a relatively random player that you might or might not have had any control over. And in a voting game, that can be incredibly determinative. And I say all this despite having, I think this is relevant for the context of the record. I won this stupid game. It's mostly because the victory conditions are relatively straightforward. Some of them are trivial and some of them are borderline impossible. So you just go for the trivial ones and just pump that as often as you can. I just sat in the middle, built up as much as I could, and I kept playing the card that gave me a point over and over and over again. And that's that's the route to success. Eventually, uh, three people attacked me at once and the third person who attacked me Uh, won the middle hex and it, they weren't able to profit from it though. And I was borderline eliminated from the game parent, uh, side note, this game has player elimination and I still won, but because I'd already built up a score because the game throttles your scoring opportunity so much that if you don't do something by the fifth turn of a 10 turn game, you're not going to have time. Where it should be flexible it's not where it should be simple it's not where it should be fast moving it's not where it should be a little bit more robust it's simplistic uh this 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 game is just a misfire to me on on so many levels rune wars on the other hand which is somewhat similar it has a similar notion of activation of activating territories and moving people in and then those those, those people are locked has used that same system much better effect uh, rune wars which is largely uh, some of the same people who are involved in this I think Corey uh, Kanitska, sorry I don't know how to pronounce his name. Was involved in that design. Uh, yeah, go play Rune Wars. Twilight Imperium is a waste of your time.
0: No, I have to admit, I
1: do not play uh, Twilight
0: Imperium for its elegance. It's just the experience. I really, when I when I explain it to people, I really tell them, you know, play your own game. Don't worry about the victory points. If you like, you know, building ships and
1: going and fighting, then do that. Just do do what you like. Oh, I'm going to ask you to go into a little bit more detail, if you could. So a number of people have said this. Some people showed up on Twitter and uh, basically impugned my taste which is fine that's why i'm there talking about how twilight imperium was you know the experience of playing the game offers you something that other games can't or don't or won't Are, are you able to give a little bit more detail to what is it that you're getting out of twilight imperium that makes you want to come back I don't know. It, it just covers the whole gambit.
0: Not I'm not saying it covers it well, but it does have everything included. It has your your military, your political, your exploration, your player interaction, and like right from the beginning. Like both games, we I played it twice this weekend in both games. Just setting up. Like we talked about last time, uh, stories and theme, like someone ha- put their PDS in the, on the table and it pointed at in the direction of somebody else, and the trash talk started right off the beginning. It's like, it's a, this epic experience. Everyone knows Twilight Imperium 4, or Twilight Imperium in general, that it's going to be this this epic game that, you know, that you're going to talk about it for, you know, days after type thing.
1: Sure, I'm talking about it days after mostly because of how terrible it was, but... It, it's true. It's it's not for everybody, like every game. it's. I think it's just taste. Some people like it, and <laughs> That's some a co- people won't. That's a cop-out. That's a cop-out that I refuse to engage in. <laughs> I refuse. Just, Look, for some things, of course, but carte blanche, with respect to it as a gaming experience, if you just want to... Look, there are bad games that I like, and there are good games that I don't like. Twilight Imperium 4 is not one of either of those categories. And if... You want to tell me, if somebody wants to tell me that I really like playing Twilight Imperium because Space Lions are my favorite thing in the world, and I go to Twilight Imperium for Space Lions, and that just makes me happy, that's cool. There's nothing that can be said about that. But when somebody who's played Eclipse, which I assume you have, I have. and somebody who I think would deliberately avoid playing a game of Here I Stand, which I assume you haven't played Here I Stand, no. uh, or any of the other sort of multiplayer games, conflict games that take these issues seriously, that introduce a slightly more robust and satisfying diplomacy setting, like Here I Stand does. So why why would you break out Twilight Imperium rather than Eclipse? There's uh, While you're going through that, I was going to go on about the races. Now, there's 17
0: races in Twilight Imperium, and sure. none of them seem to be overpowered. I mean, they all seem to be fairly balanced. There's not one race you say, oh, that's way more better than the rest or anything like that. So I think they've done a good job balancing all these races. And if you've gone through all the other Twilight Imperiums and they've stuck, you know, with their theme, each one has a little theme, the way they do, how it interacts with the board.
1: It all seems to work, come together pretty well. Sure, but Eclipse also has asymmetric races.
0: It does, for sure. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to compare the two. I, in
1: my opinion, they're totally two different games. I think they do need to be compared, because if we're talking about 4X games, you know, explore, exploit, expand, exterminate, uh, I all these things that you talk about, how it does the gamut, how it allows you to engage in technological research, and fighting on the map, and exploring a map, and, and engaging the other players, and all these other things, my mind immediately goes to, you know, the GMT, and Avalon Hill, and other consim games, which you don't want to talk about, that's fine. And games like Eclipse. Well, Eclipse, the same thing happens in Eclipse that happens in Twilight Imperium with the combat. Like Usually it's
0: not one-on-one, it's usually one person will weaken somebody else and someone will swoop in and be the victor.
1: I've seen that happen many times in Eclipse. But combat doesn't work, the combat isn't set to the same tempo. No. And it's also the case that combat is often transactional. Oftentimes I go in there to fight simply for the, victor, the immediate victory rewards, not so I can hold on to the dirt. After the dust settles, okay,
0: we are going on a lot better with this. But we had the second game we had was way different. There was a lot more negotiation going on in the game. In the first game we played, the trade notes were not being passed at all. Mm-hmm. In the second game, almost everyone's turn, they were trading, passing trade notes. There was a great uh, what's the the uh, Japanese game where you trade family members? Senji. There was a great senji thing going on because there's like a ceasefire card. I I traded it with one player and then traded it to his opponent. Okay. It was there was some, it was a much different game. Okay. So I think with the different with the different crowd, I think you might have a different experience. Sure, probably much rather play Senji. This, this is true. I, <laughs> yeah, no, I would not put you through that again. That's for sure.
1: Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to put you through that again. I was. I was. As I say, I tried very hard, but I was not a very uh, pleasant gaming partner. It wasn't even. And, and just to be clear, it wasn't even that I felt aggrieved at what was happening to me. I felt aggrieved at the grotesque stupidity of the elements of the game design. At least I think I did. I, I might I might be confused. But when uh, people were targeting other people with random nonsense and take that cards, I found that about as infuriating as when people were targeting me with random arbitrary nonsense. But anyhow, yes, we've spent a fair bit of time talking about this. And as I say, I'm not in a position to give a full, in-depth, detailed review, only having played it the one time. Uh, so perhaps we'd we'd best move on. What else have you got on your list, Walker?
0: Another game that we've both played but not together: Pandemic Legacy Two. We only played the the prelude and the first mission. I'm I'm really enjoying it. I really like. I know all they did was like flip it around. There's really no spoilers. Instead of trying to get rid of cubes, you're trying to add cubes. So not not a huge uh, leap in game design difference, but but I I've, I I. I've,
1: I find it kind of interesting so far. Compared to the first season, are, are you finding it more engaging, less engaging, oh, too soon to definitely,
0: tell? Definitely less. It's not as not as exciting as the first one, but I think it's going to have its own nuances, I think, for sure.
1: Yeah, I still haven't had an opportunity to get it to the table again. My, uh, my Pandemic Legacy partner has been out of town, so it, it'll be a little bit before we can progress further into the campaign, but more details to follow. Uh, Next up, another game that we'd been waiting for for a while, I think, is uh, the latest expansion to Scythe, which is called The Wind Gambit. Correct. We had a chance to, to try it out with the aforementioned airships, and I have to say I was very pleasantly surprised with the changes that it introduced to the game state. Specifically, it introduced more player interaction to the game without more direct aggression. There were lots of, it it introduced a very interesting way of indirect aggression, because airships don't fight, as a rule. There's one module where they do, Uh, but they introduce additional roadblocks uh, for your opponents or additional avenues for you to explore the board. Uh, Scythe, in many ways, is is for many factions, is a game about getting across the river, and the airships in many contexts give you a different way to do that, which I found interesting, and in uh, in the base game of Scythe, there's most of the interaction is in terms of racing and a couple fights. but with the wind gambit, you still have that Ra- the racing has now been influenced by virtue of what the airships introduced. You still have the fights and sometimes the airships influence that, but the airships often uh, provide additional context for getting in each other's way or influencing people's decisions. I was very, very pleased.
0: Yeah, very basic, no fiddly bits whatsoever. you know what I mean there's no like you know trying to interpret what they meant. It was nice, straightforward, streamlined. They did a fantastic job as far as I'm concerned. The alternate endings, the those cards, two different ways to play the airships every time with a an offensive and defensive card, so it's gonna be changed up all the time. I think I'm looking forward to playing it again, that's for sure.
1: Absolutely. Shame about your box though.
0: Yeah, I got the I've got the legendary box and the giant legendary giant empty box that's full of three other large empty boxes. Unfortunately the three large empty boxes were completely mangified.
1: Yeah, it was it was a bit of a shame. Very lovely box, I got to say. I I've managed to get all the components inside the base game box by ditching the the, the plastic trays. Uh, so I, I you know, shelf space being at a premium, but it is a very very lovely product. I got to say, the art is very well done, of course, because it's scythe and and it's just a very very nice box. Yeah, well, I what did
0: I say? I read about it. he's going to, he's going to announce the third expansion in January. Yeah, so that's something to look forward to. Yep, absolutely. So that a segue into news, unless you had something else for a game this week? Nope. All right, I have one quick thing for the news. It's Hate was announced for Simon And what's so great about Hate, it's the same artist that did uh, Blood Rage, Adrian Smith. So their Kickstarter for Hate is going to go up on Kickstarter. Apparently it's going to be Kickstarter only, even for retailers. Because I guess there's going to be some sort of adult content, so it's going to be uh, Kickstarter only.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean so this is this is interesting. I am I'm, I'm more interested about the distribution method than the game itself. I'm a I'm a reasonably big fan of a lot of Simon's designs, but I don't automatically assume that everything they're gonna put out is gonna be amazing. Like I passed on about 75% of their, their recent Kickstarters, even though I, I I do enjoy some of their stuff. But they say it's gonna be Kickstarter only and then a select number of retailers that are part of a special program that they have which I think is related to their organized play, but not exclusively uh, overlapping with it. I don't know how I feel about this. It seems like a strange... Maybe what they did was uh, their Kickstarter... It's possible, this is just speculation, it's possible that the Kickstarter campaigns, by virtue of other exclusives, had the effect of reducing market demand for the actual retail copy of the game. Like, if you compare the retail copy of... Uh, you know, any any, any of the CMON designs that I like, Dogs of War, uh, Rum and Bones, the tremendous amount of hived off exclusive content that you're only going to get on the secondary market for grotesquely invaded, uh, inflated prices might have influenced a number of consumers not to bother getting into the game at all, a sort of all or nothing mentality, which is certainly something I can respect. And so maybe with hate, they're just saying, eh, forget it, we're just going to do it this way and, and that way only. Yeah, I'm. I, I assume
0: I'm relatively normal when it comes to this and that. I'm definitely fall prey to that. If I can't, if I don't get all the little bells and whistles, then I'm. I feel I'm missing something. And sometimes I don't even bother picking up at retail if I know that there's other content out there. Like we've seen this with Orleans, and we've seen this with Scythe, and I've also done it with uh, the Zombicide stuff. So
1: there we go. My Fenris from Blood Rage is judging. I, you. I don't know what you're talking about. Um. Yeah. Alright, so let's talk about our feature game. Our feature game this week is Spirit Island, released this year by Greater Than Games, designed by R. Eric Royce. I have some disclaimers here, this is very important. Uh, Number one, I was a playtester. Number two, uh, Eric is a personal friend of mine. I did, however, pay for my copy, and I just, you know, pledged through Kickstarter like everybody else. Uh, Further disclaimers, Spirit Island may cause dry mouth if you lick the boards, which is not recommended. If you have more than six hours of uninterrupted Spirit Island, please consult a doctor. Further disclaimers, Eric never really found me funny, and Greater Than Games probably doesn't either. And uh, these disclaimers are void in the state of Mississippi. So, Spirit Island is a cooperative game, which is about the sort of nature spirits of an island resisting European colonization. It bills itself as the settler destruction strategy game, and it actually started, the genesis of it was to sort of flip the colonization story on its head, because as Eurogamers especially, we've played dozens of games where European countries are colonizing various bits of the world and uh, being more or less honest about how exploitive their labor is is being employed. but And this was... Eric's initial brainchild was, what if we just flipped this on its head? What if we dealt with the people who were resisting colonization? And he came up with this sort of abstracted fantasy theme of the nature spirits of the Aboriginals, sometimes cooperating, sometimes not, but the nature spirits fighting off the European invaders. Uh, it, it certainly helped by the fact that all the invader pieces are white plastic. Yes, And it's... That, that's one of the first things that I think is, is unique about it. It is a very good theme, which is not really repeated in a lot of other games. It takes a perspective, if for no other reason than the people involved are, are made up. But the perspective of the colonized against the colonizer is not one we see often in games.
0: No, for sure. It definitely sets up the, the tone of the game and sets the stage where, you know, it's this island. The gods are teaming up with the natives to sort of oust the sort of like Beetlejuice-type haunting of the get-out-of-my-island-type my, my island type atmosphere. I really like it.
1: That's an interesting parallel. I had not compared it to uh, Tim Burton's uh, <laughs> early work, but sure. The And indeed, that is one of your primary tools. You win by terrifying the colonizers to the point where they don't have the will to keep showing up. And this actually leads into one of the other great gameplay elements of the game is that there's tremendous asymmetry in the game. And a lot of people like asymmetry. There's uh, many different spirits that you can choose to play as and each of them has their own unique approach to things. Some of them are very defensively oriented in terms of containing the invaders so they don't do too much damage. Some of them are based purely on offense and just burn all the invaders like crazy. Some of them are slightly more subtle and rest on manipulating where the invaders go and where the other elements of the spirit uh, and are primarily support oriented in helping the other spirits out. And then they're the ones that I tend to gravitate towards, which just involve terrifying the living crap out of the invaders as much as humanly possible there's one spirit for example who's called the bringer of dreams and nightmares he doesn't he can't kill anything he's completely incapable of damaging the invaders for real what he instead does is anytime he would kill them by an effect he generates this massive quantity of fear and causes them to run away in panic so it's that kind of, of differentiation in play style uh that really helps its replayability you keep going back again and again to play different spirits I
0: really like how they interact with each other. There's no one that's, you know, better than the rest. But it's he's it's you can see the playtesting is for real. You know what I mean? It's it was there. It was done. You can see how they all interact with each other. How there's definitely a combo set up, and they were made like you, there's no. I'm not saying there's no way you could solo, but you can see where they really need to rely on each other for them to work together.
1: Oh, it's it's pretty decent solo. I've played it solo a number of times. It's not bad. Uh, just. Some spirits have an easier time of it than others. Obviously, support spirits don't do quite as well by that metric. You usually want a spirit who is very high on offense or very high on fear generation. But because you only have the one board to manage, there's a a number of boards equal to the number of players. And as you scale down, the scope becomes a little bit more narrower. So it's not overwhelming to deal with everybody by yourself if it's the case that you're playing solo. If you're inclined towards playing cooperative game solo which some people are some people not I've been fortunate enough that the the people around here like playing it enough that I've never had the need to break it out I've played this game uh over twenty five times, I think in the month since since it came out, in part because of some very very enthusiastic locals, it's one friends nearly everywhere it's gone. I've only had one unsatisfying play experience, and that was in part because it was 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 with the guy who clearly didn't understand the game but wasn't asking questions. Have you ever had an experience like that oh well, for I, sure I mean you were there at the table when
0: it happened i was i was there i was i watched I watched this train wreck slowly, not slowly quickly deteriorate into painfulness.
1: Yeah, and, and I never know what to do in context like that. And I, Spirit Island isn't more prone to it than anything else. It's a reasonably complex, involved game, but it's certainly nothing in the order of, for example, Twilight Imperium or even something like Eclipse. It's you know, it's a it's a middle it's a middleweight uh, Euro game in terms of its overall approach. But uh, you know, sometimes I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, listeners, where a player doesn't understand how the game works but refuses to ask questions. So then you're in a position of either talking down to them and i would never talk down to anyone certainly not you walker surely you're much too smart to be condescended to Uh and certainly not our listeners who are the best listeners in the world but uh you know it was just an awkward situation and he clearly wasn't feeling it and you can't make someone feel it and i'd just given a rules explanation and i can't be like i'll give you the rules explanation again from the top like that's that's just not gonna work
0: well that leads into the one the one point i made one reason why this game isn't clicking for me it could be the flow it seems to be all over the place this game you got the fast spells and you've got the slow spells and then you're not sure where the natives are going to show up next because it's going to come up randomly off the deck but you, it does sort of slide across so you know where they're going to attack next but it just seems and and uh, some people can take off you know you sort of plan ahead to you know remove these huts or destroy these buildings but then your neighbor's already done that and so okay well I'm not going to do that then and then other stuff happens. I just don't think it has the flow that other games does, and maybe sometimes it's hard for newer players or or not as experienced players to pick it up because things don't tend to lead into other things in this game like other games do.
1: Could you be a little more specific? What what exactly about the flow? Is it that you can't plan ahead, or is it the case that things are happening and you can't really understand
0: Why? Well, it just it just there's so many different things happening all over the place. Like there's fast spells and sp- slow spells, so you've got to be able to track that. And then there's the, like I said, the the random card that's going to come up, where the natives are going to attack, what type of train they're going to all appear on, and then you know that's going to slide over, but you're not sure what your partner is going to play to manipulate that and move things to where you, you know you didn't really anticipate them going. So you can't really plan ahead. Mm. Did you... What spirits
1: have you played as? Do you remember? I do not. Okay. It, it's possible... So, Walker's not very keen on the game. It's possible that this is... That a different spirit selection might have been slightly more helpful. For example, there's one spirit called Lightning Swift Strike who always acts fast. He... It, rather. I, I keep using... It's, it's a very bad habit of mine. I keep using the, the male pronoun for what are obviously genderless uh, uh, nature forces, with the exception of one, the, uh, the Thunder Speaker, who's inhabiting the body of a woman. But uh, it always acts fast. It never has to worry about timing issues because it just goes first whenever it wants to. It can make other people go first as well. So if you find the timing issue uh, problematic, I find the timing issue adds a lot of depth to planning considerations. But if that's problematic, you can just take it. Uh, there are spirits that don't really, some spirits rely more on the cooperation of others, some spirits rely less on the cooperation of others, and obviously if you take a spirit that's that's directly in opposition to your preferred playstyle, then that might cause some problems. And I can't remember if that's what happened to you, but because sure. you're obviously wrong about the game, it's brilliant.
0: I, I never said it wasn't brilliant, I'm agreeing it's brilliant, I'm saying it's a fantastic game. I'm saying it doesn't quite click, and I'm saying this is maybe the problem that newer players. guess like if you once you have, once you've played it once, then you've got it. But this might be the roadblock that newer players are
1: getting when they try to experience this for the first time. Fair enough. I will say though that one of the things about the tempo of the game—you talked about flow, but let, let's talk about tempo. What I what I well uh, what I think is great about most sessions of Spirit Island is, regardless of How well or poorly you're doing You always have a sense of agency Over what's going on You're always able to carve out At least a little bit of Well, this I can affect This I can take care of And at the beginning of the game You feel overwhelmed You feel that the invaders Are progressing at a pace That is so fast That they can never be contained And you're really just in a position Of being so weak at the beginning That you need to constantly grow in power And then there's there's a tipping point Near the middle of the game where you feel like, okay, okay, I think I've got a handle on things now. You're, you're beating back the invaders, you're sufficiently powerful. And then the game will probably end some number of turns after that, but by the end of things, you feel incredibly strong. Jamie Stegmeier pointed out of this, he, he included uh, Spirit Island on his a list of uh, 10 best for 2017, and this is one of the things he pointed at, pointed out. In this game, you feel incredibly powerful by the end of it. And it allows for something that you almost never see in Eurogames, which is big moves. In Eurogames, often it's just very incremental. You, like in Great Western Trail, for example, there are very few turns where you do something that's like, bang, mic drop. That's right. But in Spirit Island, it allows you to do things that just feel incredibly awesome and help lead to those moments that you keep talking about, where everyone at the table is telling a story about how incredibly doomed this poor city was. Yes, that's right. Well, first I infested it with boils, and then the flowers started poisoning them, and then their dreams came alive and tormented them, and then the sea monsters just ate them all. And that's the kind of thing that you're going to see in a game of Spirit Island. And
0: then the cleanup clue cream, and the wave came across and washed all the nastiness out to sea. Yeah. Seen.
1: Exactly. And this allows you to feel like a badass, tell a good story with your friends, and cooperate directly with your friends in a, in a way that lots of their co-op games don't do i mean i love pandemic and i love a lot of uh a lot of its iterations but a game like when you saw in, uh the the quote unquote evolution of pandemic in games like forbidden island or forbidden desert what it did was those games simplified the formula to such an extent that it laid bare what pandemic is pandemic is a game where you're killing time until you draw the, the cards you need that's what the game is at the end of the day in terms of the r- victory conditions, breaking it down yeah and a lot of co-op games are basically that. You know, I take my actions, bad thing happens. I take it's, You take your actions, bad thing happens. And you wait until you have the cards you need to go and, and do the thing. Spirit Island allows you to be much more proactive. Spirit Island allows you to pull off the big, satisfying moves. It lets you feel like an amazing, primeval force of nature and do terrible, awful, amazing things. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's the most thematic game, I one of the most thematic games I've ever played. The Amazing Writing doesn't hurt either. I've talked about this before. Twisted Flowers Murmur Ultimatums is one of the cards that I absolutely love. Brilliant. And it's just so many great moments that happen just turn by turn and you get to feel so in control of your own destiny. And which allows you to uh and, and as a corollary to this, it allows for genuine cooperation without quarterbacking. A lot of people object to this, the you know, the Alpha Gamer problem, the sock puppetry problem, the quarterbacking problem, whatever you want to call it. Because the game is so involved, and this I think what hel- what might help explain what broke up the flow for you, because there is a lot of you know there are a lot of details going on, and you do have to sort of make a decision about how much you're going to control, and I'm going to focus on this this turn. This is all I can take care of, but this is what I can what I can focus on. But by virtue of that, no, you know, it's I'm not I'm not really ever as an experienced player in a position to look at your entire hand of power cards and say no 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 you do this this and this. That's right, for sure, yeah. That's what I like about it too. That's the other great mechanism is, you get to go through the
0: decks, uh, manage your hand right, pick out the really cool spells, and then once you play those spells down, they have symbols on the side that are going to co-op with your you know asymmetrical god sheet. I think that is really cool.
1: Yeah, it helps with the asymmetry. The variety is tremendous. The number of powers in the base game is just amazing. Every you know every you just get to go shopping for new toys all the damn time. And you said before that the playtesting is real. I can attest to that. This game was in development for a long time, and a lot of thought were put into these different cards. And all the cards are fun to use, which, at the end of the day, is ultimately what you want in a game with lots of toys. That didn't appeal to you? It, oh, I liked it. I think it can really
0: benefit from an expansion, like maybe uh, decks for each of the gods, where you can start upgrading the spells from you know that particular deck, mm. where it's spells that are tailor-made for that particular spirit. I think that would be really neat.
1: There is a way to play for new players, and I don't know if I uh, made you do this your first time playing. Maybe I didn't, and maybe that was a mistake. There's a way to do it for new players, and they say, Okay, play one of these four entry-level spirits, and then every time you gain a new power, you don't go to the deck, you don't draw four, keep one as, as you normally do. You just take the next one in sequence, you just set these cards off inside. This is your personal deck. Every time you gain a power, you gain the top one off, off this deck. And, uh, you know, looking back, I don't think I, I had you do that. Maybe I should have trading wheels. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's not a look, (laughs) I normally, I posted about this on board game geek, actually 99 times out of a hundred. When a game tells you play this introductory scenario first, and we're going to get into this a little bit later when we talk about rule books, what they're doing is they're pitching me a non game that might make me, that might make, give me a bad impression of the actual game. When spirit Island tells you, you probably want to start with the beginner spirits you probably might want to start with this power progression card and definitely don't include the expansion right away, which introduces some new mechanisms. They mean it, and they're right. It's not because the game is incredibly difficult. It's not because the game is too complicated. It's just it's sufficiently involved that if you don't have a good handle on the, the fundamentals, then the other details can easily overwhelm you. And if uh, if I was a poor steward in introducing you to the fabulous world of Spirit Island, then I apologize. It was all good. I don't know that It was. Great game. Spirit Island. Yep, I recommend it unreservedly. If you can find it, I, I think the, the print runs have been selling out in about five seconds, which is great. Uh, and I know that Eric has more in him, so if uh, if there's opportunity for, for yet more expansions, more spirits in particular. I played with a number of spirits who, who didn't show up in the final version. Some of them were cut for balance reasons. Some of them were were, were reformed into, into different versions uh, of the same. Uh, but there was one I remember in particular who dealt primarily in disease, and that was that was wonderful—just disease, you know, spreading disease and, and plague amongst the invaders and making their lives miserable that way. Good times, good, good times. times. Just a wholesome family experience. All right, now on today's topic,
0: which is rule books. We all love them. They're all perfect and infallible every time. Easy to read, instantly gets us to the table, and never makes us want to pull our hair out. And hunt down the writer and the rest of his family, that is what I feel about rule books. I should go right to my end. I'd want to rant just right 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 at the beginning. go for because it. it's so easily fixed, like blind play test, your rule book is it really that hard? I know we should have saved this to the end, but but we'll get this right off the top, and then we can just go down from there. I guess. Can you not just set? your game out in front of not your friends not your gaming group not your play testers that you've run this game through so many times just say hey here's a new game at any convention or your local gaming store can you play it and you'll watch them read the book you'll see the problems that they go
1: through and you can change your book and it's i think that's an easy thing is that not an easy thing it requires a certain dedication. You need to be able to find these people. And there's an art to being a playtester just in the same way that there's an art to, being, to writing a rule book. But I think that highlights one of the problems that you identified right off the top. You said you wanted to hunt down and, and murder these people who write the rule books, But it's often impossible to tell who did it. I, I I sometimes look at the back of, of a rulebook and you see in the credits, you see like, okay, this person did the sculpting. This person was the coordinator with the Chinese factory. This person was the interpreter with the Chinese, whatever. But usually the assumption is that it's the designer who's going to write the rulebook. And being a good designer and being a good rulebook writer are often two very different skills. And it's almost always an afterthought. I've been involved in the development process of some games and it's just, you know, it's like, oh, whatever it's it's a huge problem and you're right there's no blind testing i actually remember back when i was uh, a reviewer for 5 seconds people would always talk about the corrupting influence of review copies and to my mind review copies aren't a big problem the corrupting influence to me is when your first exposure to a game is in a managed environment. When the designer or the developer or the the people who who are selling the game are teaching you the game in the first instance. This is definitely the the case of the criticisms uh, for a game called Myth, which was put up by Megacon Games a few years ago, uh, ago, which got very early glowing reviews from a number of people who never read the rulebook. And then people who got the game with its rulebook, and Myth is one of the worst rulebooks I've read, had this incomprehensible experience and there would. there was this backlash against the reviewers saying why didn't you tell us that this game was was this difficult to grok and they're like well I don't know I was taught by the designer. And you're right. You need impartial eyes on it who don't have any exposure to the rest of the team.
0: Yeah, that being said, like there's all sorts of different styles of rulebook. Like there's like the totally, you know, full of theme rulebook, multiple rulebooks. There's all sorts of different ways to do rulebooks. And I think that's always going to fall into the like some people like it this way, some people like it that way. But just the Rule book that people can understand and learn the game and have an enjoyable experience that's all you need to do
1: is just blind play testing it. it does take time it and does. it's a question of resources sometimes so i can understand sure. why people don't do it but let's talk about these thematic rulebooks what's a what's a good thematic rulebook that you really liked i there are two and they're actually by the same person
0: dungeon lords and space alert i think are the best two rule books i've ever read
1: you know those are those are exactly the ones that I've got on my list as well. I would also mention Galaxy Trucker. The Trucker Rulebook is also great, hilarious. Uh and what's particularly amazing about some of the, the moments in these rulebooks is they're hilarious. They're 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 really well written, they're very funny. Some of them even have jokes that help you remember the rules. And that is brilliant brilliant writing. There's this uh there are aliens that boost your stats in Galaxy Trucker, but they only boost your stats if you have the stat to begin with. And the explanation is well, this guy will help fine tune your engines, but if you don't have any engines, he's not going to get on and push. It was funnier in the original, but it helps you remember how the rule works. Exactly, yeah. As opposed to other rule books which try to be funny and fail. And there's one in particular I'm thinking of, and that's 51st State Master Set.
0: Yeah. Well, we can get into portal games and the rule books, but yeah, but as I was going to bring up the same thing, they try the same thing and then. Ultimately, badly fail. Like in some cases, even it give you the wrong impression on how the game is played.
1: Yeah, it is above and beyond all the other technical issues with Portal games rulebooks, and there are many. The Fifty First State Master Set rulebook has these obnoxious asides. That number one, I don't find particularly funny, but that's a question of taste. But it's so bad and so pervasive that even in the setup rule sheet, the the, the sort of uh, the separate reference sheet that helps you remi- remind you how to set up the game there are these nonsense aside's in there and like you know give somebody uh, their player board but they don't get to keep it it's not their birthday present or something like that like yeah. come on it's a reference document for crying out loud if you want to if you want to try your 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 d grade comedy in your old book fine give it a shot but uh, first of all it's better if you hive it off in separate little insert paragraphs right the the funny bits in galaxy trucker And uh, many of the, the, the similar ones in Space Alert are hived off in these little paragraphs with a different color shading. So you know to skip them if you're just trying to refer back to the rule. So above and beyond the improved writing quality, it, it it helps to improve its quality as a reference document as well. Yeah, it's but... like
0: a break in between rules, right? So it's not like tax, tax, tax. It's like you read this. Here's how this works, and then a nice little funny, you know, back and forth between like, just like you remember uh, Blood Bowl, you know, the computer game Blood Bowl where they have the announcers, you know, the back talk. Sort of like that, it's like well, here's here's how you do this, and then you know they'll do their little banter, and then yeah,
1: what do you have for bad rule books? So, uh, the worst rule book that I ever read, and I feel bad because, uh, I, have actually had some, uh, I've, I've done some work with the, 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 designer. The worst rule book I ever read, uh, was a game called Newland, which was a Euro game published over 10 years ago. The English version was by, uh, Z-Man and Newland is one of those rule books, the truly amazing rule books. Sometimes you read a rule book and there are some processes you don't understand. Sometimes you read a rulebook and all the individual processes make sense, but you don't know how the game is played. When you sit back to actually teach the game, you're like, wait, how does a turn structure work? I don't, I mean, I know how to repair, I, I know how to do this this repair action, but I don't know in what context it happens. Newland was one of those truly great train wrecks where you didn't understand how any of the processes worked and you didn't understand how any of the processes fit together with each other. A truly catastrophic mess. Yeah, there,
0: I had a funny experience too. We all, I always quote this rulebook. as a game called, by TSR, Divine Right, in its first edition, its rule book read like a lawyer's document. It was great. It was, it was like the old school point system, like Rule One Point One Zero Five. And oh, you want you want to take these trolls as mercenaries? Well, if you are the non-active, non-aligned, non-aggressive <laughs> player, then oh, it was just fantastic. I really tried to find it last night, but nowhere online could I find the original rule book because I wanted to quote it exactly because I remember it being fantastic. Or how about Robinson Crusoe? Where the errata. Uh, FAQ is bigger than the actual rulebook, and in some cases, that's not terrible. But Robinson Crusoe is not that complicated of a game. It is a very well designed game, and I think the rulebook should be quite easy. It's there's no fiddly bits in there that you know you do these actions, you see the decks, and you and you progress through the game. It really should not have been that difficult.
1: Yeah, and amazingly, when they had a chance to do a follow up. Uh, First Martians, they screwed it up again.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. It really is like even I think even worse.
1: Yeah, I, First Martians I think is, is is a really good example of a game where I understood all the individual processes more or less. Like they weren't they weren't brilliant, but I understood how to repair a system. I understood how to get, get a system o- online and and so forth. I just didn't understand how any individual thing fit into the broader picture. The some of the details made sense, but I couldn't get any notion of how they were structured.
0: That 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 just feeds into the uh, blind playtesting thing. But then there's we can get into the what we were talking about before is the different themes of rule books that people mm. don't like. Like the multi, I know you don't like the, the fantasy flight multi rule book I do not thing where I think it's fantastic. I think it's a, a game in on itself. It's like choose your own adventure. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's like, oh I wanna know about this. So I turn to page thirty two and it says this, this and this. It says, Well, On the bottom it says, well, here's what you're actually looking for. Go to page 105. Well, then you go to page 105 and it tells you something completely that you don't want to know. But if you want to find out what you want to know, then go page 74.
1: And it's like a little adventure that you go on. I think it's fantastic. Here's what I don't like about the Fantasy Flight multi-rulebook format. I will note that the multi-rulebook format, to my taste, has only ever worked in uh, Vlada's games. I think it worked in uh, Space Alert because you had the... Read this more verbose one, and then you had a, 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 a reference manual. And it works in Mage Knight, where, again, first you read the Learn How to Play, and then there's a reference manual. The difference between those two approaches and the way Fantasy Flight does it is both of the rulebooks are comprehensive. Both of them you can read from front cover to back cover, and it will tell you everything you need to know, absolutely everything. They just do it in a slightly different style. The, the huge issue I have with Fantasy Flight rulebooks is neither of them is comprehensive. You can't read either of them and get a full picture. And partially as a consequence of this... I personally, and maybe this is because I'm an idiot. Maybe I uh, this is just a, a, a mental alignment problem. I often don't know where to look to find the information that I need. You would think, oh, it's automatically in the reference document. Not always. Let me give two specific examples. One of them is Battle Lore 2nd Edition. I adore Battle Lore 2nd Edition. I think it's a great game. I think it's probably Fantasy Flight's best in-house design work they've ever done. But if you need to figure out the victory conditions of the game. At what score threshold the game ends. You're not gonna find it in the reference book. I've checked, it's not under victory points because under victory points, they tell you how to get victory points and how they're tracked. They don't tell, oh by the way, the game ends when when whatever. Uh, there's no end of game sequence in the reference manual either. So you have to find it in the learn to play document. And in the learn to play document, the learn to play document is chopped up into two different bits. Uh, three different bits, actually. One, the first bit is teaching you this introductory non-game, where it's like, take these things and do this thing, because you're too dumb to understand a draw phase and then an action phase, and then it's all, the, all this other nonsense. Um, and then there's the, okay, well let's start again and talk about what a full game looks like, where they repeat some of the information, but not all of them. So you get some of the setup information there, but then in order to structure the play, you have to go back to the early game that you're not playing anymore, you're playing the full game, so that Additional elements in the full game, and then there's a reference, a brief reference about keywords at the end. So you have to find it in the first of those three sections, even though you're not playing the introductory baby game anymore. Crap like that really angers me, and I don't understand why they do it that way. Well,
0: that's what I'm, I was going to say. Let me do what I usually do and play the the man on the fence. Now, is are all of these problems are these because they have to put out each game with brand new gamers in mind? That the family could come down and take this off the shelf and have no preconceptions of any game terms or anything at all. They're going from step one. So they're taking this rule book out of the thing and they don't know any of these terms or anything
1: else. So they have to cater to those people. So I think I would be shocked if Battle Lore 1st Edition was less pitched towards this kind of situation the Battle Lore 2nd Edition is. Because Battle Lore 1st Edition was put out by Days of Wonder, and their market is decidedly less hardcore than Fantasy Flight is. And Battle Lore 1st Edition was not considerably less complicated than Battle Lore 2nd Edition was. I would say that they're roughly equal on a par of complexity. The Battle Lore, 1st Edition Battle Lore book was fine. And I don't remember there being any complaints about it being difficult to understand. Now, I don't hear a lot of complaints about Battle or 2nd Edition rulebook either, but Fantasy Flight seems to have uh, found itself in a position where a certain proportion of gamers hate the way they do rulebooks and say they're always incomprehensible, and then another proportion that always show up and say, oh no, no, they're fine, I love them. So I don't know whether this is a widespread problem or just me. But as far as as identifying the th- this notion that Average or introductory gamers don't need to look things up afterwards. I think is a canard. I don't think that's true. I think that people who are less accustomed to gaming need to look things up as much as anybody else. And I'm sure that some people are able to say, "Ah, screw it. We'll just you know house rule it and just go forward and do whatever we want." But I I, I don't know that that attitude is more prevalent amongst intro gamers than experienced gamers. I could easily imagine an intro gamer trying to as you know, sit down and you're playing Battle Lore and someone's got a whole bunch of points and then like, okay, well how many points do we need to win? And they're like, I have no idea where to find it. I I don't see that being less of a problem for people who are less experienced gamers. No,
0: I don't know that particular, the Battle Lore instance for sure and the victory points, but I just mean in general. I'm wondering if these, these rule books are being manipulated somehow because they have to think about
1: brand new gamers every time. Sure, but then I think they ought to do it the way that Mage Knight and Space Alert did it. Create one document, which is intended to be uh, relatively verbose in terms of, okay, look, here's how it works, here's how the game functions, but make it complete, so that you read this document and it's accessible and easy to understand and has examples and maybe has thematic interludes to to, to help you help sell the setting. Uh, but then you explain okay now that you've read this you have everything you need but if there are details you can't remember go to this much shorter easier to reference document that maybe has numbered paragraphs i like numbered paragraph I love systems
0: numbered paragraphs
1: when it's done well it allows for good cross referencing when it's done poorly it's often just ridiculous and i've read a number of those oh yeah what is it pathfinder
0: i think the role playing thing where it was always like xx go to xx because you know they had all these things but they they forgot to go back and tell you what page number or what reference paragraph to go to so it kept just saying xx yeah back Copy editing will definitely ruin a rule book. Yep. That is, that is for damn sure. So should we segue into actual mistakes that are made into rule books now? Do you have any of those written down? What are particular things that they do wrong in rule books?
1: So there's there's one example uh recently because and after this I promise I'll I'll try to lay off Fantasy Flight for the rest of the uh, the rest of the, the broadcast. He's lying. So we talked about Sid Meier's Civilization and New Dawn, which is a reasonably good rulebook. There's only one of them, that helps. But they buried a fundamental rule of the game in basically the FAQ at the end. Let me let me let me look up. It's actually in the rules clarifications. I'm of the strong opinion. A lot of this is about signposting, letting people know where to find things, preparing people to to, to process the information a certain way. If you have a section called rules clarifications. It should all be I don't know clarifications, not new rules. I was going to say,
0: it not by definition clarifying a rule that already exists? Doesn't the rule already have to exist in order for it to be clarified? I think that's how
1: English language works.
0: Yeah, just I just it was just just my two bits.
1: Yeah, and this relates to a broader problem, but I think that that's more of a an issue of what I'm looking for in a good rule book design than actual mistakes. Uh, there have been lots of games, uh, to, to pick on Megacon games, the guy who put out m- a myth, their Mercs recon game, which had some fun moments. There were a number of fundamental things about, uh, player count that they didn't mention. They just didn't tell you how many characters were involved in each game, uh, or, or, or player count information. So the setup was just incomplete on its face. There's a game called Disc Duelers by Level 99 Games, which is a fun little flicking game. I quite enjoy it. Uh, they t- in that game you can create you can do ranged attacks or melee attacks. They in the rulebook there is no mention of male- of ranged attacks at all, none at all. Period. Uh, they say it was a copy editing problem and they just left out a page. Uh, so obviously you know flat out mistakes. Uh, rules that that ought to have been uh, included in the main body rather than in sort of an FAQ, always a problem. Mine are just mostly
0: component problems like drawing like when you draw the last card what happens when you take the last component what do you do Mm. like do you reach you know it's obvious you know in most games you, you know you shuffle the discard and start drawing again but sometimes you know you're only supposed to go through the deck once but they don't tell you that or when you take the last coins do you just use you know other tokens to represent you know getting more money because you want more money but you're actually supposed to be limited by the token
1: count yeah that's a good point issues about decks especially Normally the, the default assumption of gamers is when you, when a deck runs out you you reshuffle and keep going. And I think that a good a well-written rulebook needs to be conscious of what the default expectations of gamers are. If a deck you're only supposed to go through once and then never use it again, you need to say so very clearly because you need to know that most people assume that you reshuffle and keep going. Uh, a recent example of another game that I quite like called Guards of Atlantis, a very 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 good game. And the rulebook is fine but it would have benefited considerably from a little bit of this consciousness for example in this game you can do ranged attacks but there are absolutely no restrictions on line of sight nothing blocks line of sight characters don't minions don't terrain doesn't nothing blocks line of sight they should have mentioned that there are no line of sight rules because in every other game in practically every other game where you can get a ranged attack some set of things might or might not get in your way so just leaving out that section because you don't have any restrictions is kind of okay, but it's much, much better if you just simply are aware of the fact that people are going to be curious and simply say, by the way, there are no restrictions on, on nothing gets in your way of line of sight. So oversights like that, I think, are understandable oversights. You know, I could easily imagine a, a, a the, the rule book writer saying, well, I never, I never told you to reshuffle the deck. Why did you reshuffle the deck? It's like, well, that's usually the default. So yeah. you got to be conscious of that.
0: And the other thing would be most or have the most like victory conditions, right? Have the most of this, have the most of that, you know, and what happens if it's tied? Right? Yes, it's always these things, you know, while well, well, suddenly, you know, we both have the same amount. What do you do then? Like yes. if, you, if you don't understand that that can happen, I just I, I don't get it.
1: Most is usually ambiguous. Uh, ally is often ambiguous or friendly. Yes. Is a character friendly to itself? Is a character allied to itself? Adjacency?
0: Are you, are you adjacent yep. to the space that you're in?
1: Yep, yep, stuff like that. It's these these simple things. If you're going to have a rules reference document, if you're going to farm off things into a in, into a into a separate section, those are the kind of things that absolutely have to be there. If they're not in the body of the main text, I would put them in both places. But that having been said, this is where some of the balance comes in. Some of the some of the difficulty. You talked a little bit before about that TSR game that was incomprehensible. There is a tipping point past which too many technical terms can make the game unplayable. I remember a game called uh, The Napoleonic Wars. This was a GMT multiplayer CDG. Pretty good game, but one of the chief rules difficulties in terms of playing the game, there was this basically this matrix of intersecting technical terms to refer to the diplomatic state of various other nations. It's like you can be a client power, you can be a neutral client power, or an ally client power, or you can blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know it can be a, a contested friendly reserve space you know and sometimes you need this level of detail but it would it it's it's best to keep it as simple as possible you know uh i i was just talking about pericles earlier pericles a space is either uh friendly contested or or uh enemy or neutral if it's empty that's it with that, with that level of of distinction, you can easily glance at something and figure out what's going on. It's not overloaded with technical terms. There's a lot going on, but it understood that from a design perspective, it needed to make sure that when it uses terms like friendly, when it uses terms like enemy, when it uses these terms, you have to immediately understand what those things mean. That gets a little bit into the game design rather than rulebook design, but sometimes they go hand in hand. Translations. Oh, dear lord. It- <laughs> you think in
0: the old days, you'd think that this was a problem, but what? Meeple Circus is this month. Yeah. This month. What do they do? Do they cut, paste, Google translate?
1: Look, to the printer, I, I'm more sympathetic when a translation is bad or when it uses sloppy language, I'm a little bit more sympathetic, okay? There was an example in Meeple Cir- uh, Circus where a word uh, was badly translated and, and instead of Flipping up a card, it said "return a card," and that—that's that. I understood how that worked. I know—I know the French word they were translating, and they just messed that up. The thing that I don't understand about translated rulebooks—and they did this in meeple Circus—and they also did this in one of my uh one of my favorite games, whose rulebook I actually rewrote because it was such a mess. La Révolution française, la Patrie en danger. Great game, you'll never play it because the cover's ugly. There are rules that are present in one language rulebook that are not present in the other language rulebook. We actually experienced this in meeple Circus, where I actually looked up the French rulebook to see if the original would would offer more clarity. And And I found there were rules in the English version that weren't present in the French version. And this leaves me in a position of wondering what on earth I'm supposed to do with this information, because now I have two documents that don't agree with each other. I mean, Meeple Circus also committed a number of other cardinal sins. It referred to different kinds of components using the same terms. It was stultifyingly vague about fundamental questions of scoring conditions. Like, we had to come to... We had to argue for about... Well, argue. It was it was a good nature no. disagreement.
0: Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even say... I wouldn't, I wouldn't even saying disagreement, as think is taken to it It's
1: just like, you know, well, what do they mean? And, yeah. And different interpretations
0: of what it could mean, right? We
1: spent 10 minutes trying to discuss whether a car, Whether a certain game situation satisfied the conditions on a card. And it, that could have been solved with one or two lines in the rule book. Or even if they wanted to say... Before your first game, agree how strict you want to be about these interpretations. That I think would be a cop out, but at least it would give me clear instructions about how to approach the experience. Because at the end of the day, that's what I'm looking for in a rule book: a relatively clear set of, of of instructions about how to approach this experience. Obviously, we're all playing make believe. We're a whole bunch of grown ups playing with toys in a make believe context. But it is the rules that give the game some degree of structure. And at the point where we have to make the the structure ourselves, eh? Not not interested. Do you have other examples of of grotesque sins against uh, the gaming community from rulebooks? Well, if we can go into the actual physical rulebook itself, how
0: about these rulebooks that unfold like a map that you have to read in sections that aren't actually a book that you have to, like, you know, plaster out and you hold it to the side and... And you finally think you found what you wanted, and you go, oh, "Okay, thank God!" You fold it all back up, <laughs> and then they said, "Well, boy, well, what if we do this?" And then you're like, you look at the person like you want to kill them, and then you unfold it again, trying to find where this particular rule is. How about any other had, examples of?
1: Have you seen a rule book do that when it was longer than three double sided pages? I think Jamaica's the first edition of Jamaica. I think its rule book
0: was much bigger than. Oh, really? Yeah, folded it up into this giant treasure map that you had to boy. somehow
1: maneuver around because some euro games do that and it's it is annoying but if the game is only three double-sided pages then that's that's okay past that no you need you need to staple this sucker together or or figure out some other way to do it the quest for el dorado is just three double-sided uh sheets folded out so was the first edition of stevenson's rocket so that's okay i agree it's not ideal but sometimes you know a stapled production wouldn't make any sense but if if, if you're longer than that not okay what was that
0: game with the chibis? was it arena? what was it called? There was a great rule book in it where you actually laid the rule book out and you actually played on the rule book the new the new crossmaster uh, arena crossmaster arena you did that I thought that was a great idea and the new the games' near and far and where you actually you know fold the the rule book's actually part of the the play experience right you it has a nice spiral bound you put it out on the table that's your map that you play on those are all also great innovative cool ideas for rule books.
1: Yeah, I saw that in *Near and Far*. I thought it was clever. I agree. So, what what is there a kind of structure that you prefer when when a rule book? Because I definitely do, and I'd be curious to see if uh, if you. No, have I, a, I, I
0: really do, do. the fancy flight ones. Even though I joked about it, I do. I don't mind them so much anymore. Like it gives you the nice basic playthrough, how the game flows. You can sort of go through a game. You can see how it is all going to like come together eventually. So you can sort of make some leaps in the rules and then. You know, if that doesn't make sense, you can sort of quickly look in the reference and it's usually nicely laid out, alphabetical, so you can find what you need. Sometimes, like I said, you do have to go on a little search through different terms, but at least it's all there and then you eventually will be able to figure out.
1: Yeah, but if... Well, let's take an example. Say you have a question about the turn structure. You have a question about when a certain phase happens. That's not going to be in... The reference document because if you just look up in the index of the big reference document it'll tell you about the structure in some degree of detail but it won't tell you how it fits into the broader scheme of things right because their reference document is basically just a dictionary or an encyclopedia of various game terms but in order to get an overall sense of the game in terms of the turn structure what you do want to turn how an entire round plays out for that you need to go to the learn to play booklet and the terrible problem there is if it has an intro scenario, it might have a truncated round structure where not all the phases happen. So in order to find the full round structure laid out in all its glory, sometimes not only do you have to reference two books, but you need to find it in the right section of the first book because it isn't in the, the learn-to-play version. It's crap like that that really gets me frustrated and confused. It's, it's, this is These are all
0: true facts. I cannot <laughs> dispute what you are saying. But sometimes they do put that under T and return structure, they will have the whole turn structure. Or under S for setup, Though they will list the entire setup for the game. Really? So, yeah. I guess, I guess I just missed those. Sometimes. Not for all games. Okay. Like, they did not do that for Twilight Imperium. You looked in there, it did not, like we said, did not tell you when the assembly phase was. We had sort of, like, parse it out when the assembly phase happened and where it would fit in.
1: Hmm. Fair enough. I... To, to my mind, when I'm I'm often the primary game explainer of an of of any new game for which I'm reading the rulebook, and I very much prefer it if it mirrors the way that I understand a game, which is it needs to be very very clear about how all these other mechanisms that, that they are going to introduce later on fit into the overall structure of a game. I don't like it when a rulebook starts by telling me about how certain actions work before telling me about what in what context those actions are going to be. So in other words, if we're talking about a game like Battle Lore, I want you to tell me, step by step, right at the outset, I want you to give me a framework for everything that I'm going to be doing over the course of a round. And then I want you to introduce and explain those concepts in more detail in that same order. And that helps me remember, that helps me... It also helps me internalize where to look things up. Because you don't need a reference document if everything is where it belongs. If I need to figure out whether... uh, you know, whether a certain attack works a certain way, well, I can find that in the attack resolution if I need to. Or if I know it's related to a keyword, I can check, you know, the list of keywords, which ideally ought to be at the back. If I need to figure out how many points I need to win, I should find that at the end of the game. I shouldn't find that somewhere else. And ideally, those things should occur in the same order. And there are exceptions to this where I've, I've found a, a rulebook comprehensible, but honestly... If you start introducing things to me, if you start introducing processes to me before I figure, before I know where they fit in around, I'm going to get confused. I don't know if you're the same way.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, I agree. Okay. I think Fantasy Flight usually does that quite well, or almost everybody does it quite well. They give you the turn structure. What I hate is when they give you that turn structure, and then they only give you the ones that, you know, brief explanation of how the whole turn breaks down, and then they give you the same breakdown, but they leave out parts of the term because they think they've already covered it yes and they go to detail and it's like well why didn't you cover this you know even though you're saying the same thing again but you should go into a little bit more detail just to keep l the sequence the same
1: yeah there's there's one more pet peeve i have uh specifically with respect to reading a game so i can reading a, a game's rules so i can learn how to teach it and that is if the information you're telling me here if you tell me that there's this long involved sequence but it's summarized on the game board, or it's summarized on a player screen, or it's summarized on a player aid that you're expected to have at all times, I find it immensely helpful to lessen the cognitive load of reading all these rules. If you just give me a heads up in that section, by the way, this is summarized on the game board, or by the way, this is summarized on on the player aid. And then either I can take the physical component and, you know, look at it while I'm reading the rules, or I can just know, all right, I need to understand how all these things work, but I don't need to memorize the specific order. Because normally, again, if I'm reading rules so I can teach it to somebody, I take it on the assumption that I need to remember all of this stuff at the front of my brain. But if you tell me in a a rule book that it's repeated elsewhere and it's going to have some, everyone's going to have a summary in front of their face, then I know that I don't have to worry about, about that level of detail. And so I, I, I very much find it helpful when, when games give me that heads up. That was one of my few complaints, actually, about the uh, Pericles rulebooks. There are all these very, very helpful summaries that are included everywhere, but they don't give you a heads up about what's where in the rulebook. So if you're sitting down reading the rulebook outside the context of having the game set up, you don't know what you need to remember and you don't know what you don't need to remember. All told, uh, uh, I, I just find it that extra little heads up.
0: Yeah, another problem I find all the time too, which which we talk about just basic playtesting and find out is, you know, when, when they give you the whole layout of the setup and they have all these lines pointing to all the different components and this is, and they've obviously one is mislabeled, like it's mm. pointing to the wrong thing. Like that's happened hundreds of times that I've seen and it's yet something else that can be easily picked up on just a simple, on a simple playthrough.
1: So often... The playtesters don't get the final production version, and something's changed at the last yeah. minute. Oh, for sure, and nobody thinks anything of it, but it often has those consequences. Yeah. So, are there any rule books that you want to call out for being especially excellent? Any that you can remember that you think are? I mean, we've talked about how funny uh, a lot of Vlada's rule books are, uh, Dungeon Lords and Space Alert and Galaxy Trucker. But are there any that you want to call out as as being paragons of clarity and, and usefulness?
0: No, I just remember all the old Game Master Axe and Allies and. And Fortress America, like we talked about, the you know one point zero, one point you know the nice you know decimal
1: number system, decimal yeah.
0: number system, so it easily referenced, easily found where where you need to find the rule book. And I remember when I was writing when I was writing rule books or any sort of reference material, I've I always went to the same thing. It's like old Basic language, like you know yep. you'd go down each one and things are easily found. I think that's the, my favorite layout for sure.
1: Yeah, my I've said this before. My all time favorite rule book is Combat Commander Europe. Well, in combat Mediterranean, again, a GMT game, so you'll never play it, but it's, there are a lot of rules in that game, but I've never had any problem. Literally, I've played it dozens and dozens of times. I've literally never had any problem finding what I was looking for. And the rules were so laid out that I don't often need to make much reference to them. Even after, even if I haven't played for a year or two. And it also has very instructive little, uh, little notes set off in, in a different color, so you know they're not part of the core rule, just explaining to you why you might use this process instead of another process. I like that, too, when a game says, look, here are the 12 different actions you can perform, and these two look only very slightly different, and when just reading the rules before having played, you might not understand why you do one as opposed to another. Sometimes a little bit of an author's note inserted to say, by the way, this is the salient, you know, under these circumstances, you'd probably want to do it this way. Not telling you how to play the game, but just instructing you on the salient differences. It's also got great quotes, uh, adding a little bit of flavor and humor uh, to 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 the game. Again, set off in a different color, so you know to skip them when just reading the rules. And it also has, and this is something that you, as, as, as a non-war gamer, probably don't get nearly as much of um, as I do, which is designer notes. Designer notes, at the end of a rule book, a couple of pages talking about the background of the design or why certain things were designed the way they were or what they were trying to model or other games that were inspiration. I find these almost invariably great to read and very, very, very instructive. And I wish every game, from the simplest Euro game to the most complicated beast, had designer notes. Because they're, at worst, they're useless, but they've never, uh, they often provide great insight and great enjoyment. And they're often my favorite part of the rulebook to read. I don't know if you've, aren't there designer notes in TI4 in that massive hardbound book?
0: There are tons, a whole back section on the lore and all the all the ins and outs of the T.I. universe.
1: But are there any actual designer notes about, you know... Oh, that I'm not sure. You know, Christian Peterson and Corey and, and and talking in their own voice about, you know, this is why we designed it this way. These are the changes we did and why, you know, this is the background. When I was a young lad, dreaming of space, blah, 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 all that stuff. I think it's more likely could be in there.
0: Okay, well, we'll that, have to... We'll... That would be someone that, you know, would want to read that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. But... That's all I got. That's all I got. All right. <laughs> well, I think that just wraps up our discussion of rule books. Uh, necessary evil, but sometimes can be enjoyable, and we wish they'd just be more consistently good. And there's a fair amount of overlap, I think, a fair degree of consensus about what we think makes a good rule book, even if we might disagree about some of the, the, the different contexts thank you very much for listening to so very wrong about games as always you can find us on facebook which is where we keep most of our comments we do read all your comments and we do try to get back to you as much as we can you can find walker at just rolled a dice at gmail.com you can find me additionally on twitter at all the games you like we look forward to hearing from you and we look forward to seeing you next week see you next week